0: A website is never finished, especially a B2B tech website. Welcome to Forward Slash, the podcast that explores how B2B tech companies can leverage their websites to achieve fast, efficient, predictable, and scalable growth. In each episode, I take a big issue affecting the B2B tech landscape and then pick the brains of marketing leaders around the world to learn how the issue affects the questions B2B tech marketers should be asking about their websites and how to answer them. Let's get into it. Francis Barrero, co-founder and chief product officer at Medcudi, which is a platform that helps SaaS companies increase conversion rates, upsells, and customer retention, uh, and you know just quite an established thought leader uh, in the B two B marketing community in general. Uh, really excited to have you on uh, today, man. How's it going?
1: Yeah, super excited to be here. Thanks for thanks for hosting me.
0: Of course, um, you know I've been. I've been following you for for some time now and and you've got a lot of interesting uh, perspectives on data backed uh perspectives on on plG and um really just like go to market motion best practices data management and um you know how it all relates to kind of experiences and, and ABM or abX whatever you have whatever have you uh which we're going to dive into today but I'd like to let's just start uh, with an easy one. Uh, if, if you want to tell me about, about Mad Kudu, what it is, who it's for, why they should care about it. Um, and why you yeah. founded it.
1: Um, I mean, the, the founding story was pretty interesting. We, uh, my co-founder and I, co-founder and I got contacted by, uh, a CMO that we worked with in, you know, our past lives. And he was looking to hire a data scientist for his company, uh, within the marketing team. And we thought that was pretty odd. That was, you know, uh, a few years ago when PLG wasn't really a coin term. Um, and, you know, this is a competitor of Envision. And, and we kind of challenged the idea, why would you need a data scientist to do this? Like, well, you know, like we have like a lot of people using the product and we're trying to find, you know, source opportunities for pipeline from that. And it's just a lot of data to go through. And my marketing team doesn't have the skills to go through all that data and, you know, run experiments and find opportunities. And we thought that's interesting because, you know, kind of phase one of, I guess like, you know, the digital revolution is uh, kind of an infrastructure change where we moved everything away from, um, you know, being installed on mainframe servers all the way to being installed on the cloud. And that was like kind of more of a, like almost like purely technical kind of revolution where it was like super easy now to spin up software and to get it like into the cloud, into the hands of your customers without your customers having to install anything crazy. So, That actually led to a new form of go to market where it's, you know, it was much easier to sell, right? If you compare like Oracle sales compared to Salesforce sales, you were able to do transactions online in a more transactional manner. Um, And then if you go one step further, the ability to deploy software on the cloud super easily means that you can start having a little bit more of that consumer experience where you're almost like deploying software on a user basis for them to try it out before they buy it and that's really what plg is to some extent right it's like create having a new way to go to market that puts the product front and center and that is really that has been made uh possible through a lot of the technical innovations that happened, you know the last like 15 20 years and so As we were seeing that, we're starting to realize, oh, this is like something that's here to stay. And it's just going to create more complexity in go-to-market because now companies are going to have traditional sales, like kind of, you know, take people out, steak dinner kind of stuff. You're still going to have the more um, transactional of over the phone and, you know, uh, inside sales reps. And there's going to be this new thing of PLG. And there really isn't any tool out there that allows um, go-to-market teams to manipulate data, to create segmentation without the need for engineers. And so that's why we started Math Kudu. Um, and it's one of the reasons why we were able to, you know, like have awesome customers in the early days and like people like Figma, MongoDB, uh, Envision, Segment kind of like, they saw the value in having a tool that allowed them to manipulate the data for, um, go to market segmentation without needing uh, engineers all the time. And that's something that is critical. And I think we'll, you know there's um, I think we'll we'll talk about this, but i I value um, velocity of iteration as a proxy for accuracy. I think too often we think that, oh, we're we're going to try and build like the perfect solution for something. and like any marketer knows that, being able to iterate on a campaign is what leads mm-hmm. you to having the best campaign rather than spending millions of hours brainstorming in a room in order to build the perfect campaign that you ship out. Like you need to do user feedback and the best way to do user feedback is to put it out there and iterate.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, thank you for that. Beautifully said. Uh, can I ask how Mad Cudi does it? Like what, what is the, what's the unique selling, selling proposition there? What's the mechanic of, of the product, I guess?
1: Yeah, on our end, like the the idea is really to um, say like there there's an element of bringing all the data in, uh, and that's pretty straightforward. I mean, we're we're kind of blessed in B two B SaaS that there's like really strong tech concentration, right? Like Salesforce, HubSpot, Marketo, Eloqua covers Mm -hmm. like vast majority of the CRM and map. And then on the the data side, there aren't that many analytics tools. I mean, Amplitude, Mixpanel, Segment, pretty much done uh, with it. And on the data warehouse side, like Redshift, uh, BigQuery and Snowflake also cover a big majority. So once you have connectors to those systems, it's actually pretty easy to bring data in. Um, and and then we have a system essentially that has learned from all of our um, existing customers how to configure, how to identify what is a meaningful action, what is a um, conversion. And so from that, it's going to generate um, some segmentation out of the box based on your data. And gotcha. um, it gives the ability to the to go-to-market team to go and change those. So really the idea is that um, it's a no-code um, interface and people can modify uh, all the segmentation pretty easily and do like fairly, like from very simple to very sophisticated things. Uh, but one of the big, I guess, like um, value adds there is the idea that um, the platform is very prescriptive, right? It, it comes, it comes up with a bunch of segmentation. It recommends, uh, things to do based on, um, uh, past customers it's seen.
0: Got it. Got it. Okay. Awesome. Thanks for taking that. Yeah. I can see how that'd be really useful. Um, as you said, just to like speed up, uh, that iterative process, um, and just, just learn more quickly. Uh, cool. So, um, I, 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 would like to shift into kind of the state of PLG. Uh, if you will, um, and, and I'd first like to frame uh, my first question with just like the, the reality of the B2B SaaS tech landscape in, in 2023, um, you know, especially if we're talking about MarTech or sales tech, right? It's hyper-competitive markets, shrinking markets, uh, longer sales cycles with, with uh, bigger buyer groups now just to combat bad purchasing, uh, bad purchases, if you will, um, just generally harder to open wallets uh, than it was uh, the past couple of years. And then on top of that is the, the whole idea of dark funnel and dark social and how most of the journey is, good, is happening behind the scenes. Um, and this reality, uh, you know, it, it's pushing uh, B2B SaaS tech leadership to drive for more cost-effective a- a- acquisition. PLG is in the spotlight, right? But you recently stated in, in a LinkedIn article uh, about how PLG is a strategy that uses a SaaS product to accelerate a part uh, of the customer journey, keyword part. And and I'm bringing in these four um, key learnings uh, that you relatively recently came away with at an event discussion around PLG that I found really interesting. Uh, the first, which addresses this very point, which is PLG doesn't work in a vacuum. Can you take me through that?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, you know... The, the hype of PLG is, I wouldn't say gone, but I, I definitely feel like the um, the struggles of 2023 have led a lot of CMOs and board members to go back to the to what they know, which is like enterprise, uh, you know, like ABM, I feel is getting like another, there's almost like more popular these last few months than PLG mm-hmm. just because it's like, oh my God, we absolutely need some like big pipeline and because as you're saying, like people are not opening their wallets like PLG, which generally takes a little bit longer. Uh, I think it's like PLG is a long-term play, right? You need to get people to use the product, build that kind of um, like strong community and user base before you can start monetizing it. Like ABM, it's like fairly straightforward. It's like, okay, hey, who are the accounts that are in market and like get reps to go and talk to them to generate pipe. So you feel like you get a much faster time to um, to pipe. but Anyway, so I feel like there's like something there that's happening in the market where, uh, you know, the the board is pushing on a lot of companies to, you know, like generate pipe quickly with ABM. And I think that's where it potentially is a mistake, because I do think that PLG in the long run is going to really help companies that survive this kind of um, these hard times in SaaS, because it's going to create a lot of usage from... The people actually are going to be, you know, the consumers and users of the product, and that creates a ton of brand awareness within organizations. So, what I meant by PLG doesn't live in a vacuum is that you can get a bunch of users to adopt your product if the buyer, the person like signing the check, the person that's responsible for the budget, doesn't understand what your product does nor what kind of value it brings to the users. You're never going to close that deal, right? You might get a few people swiping their credit card, but that's not going to lead you to um, enterprise pipeline and enterprise revenue, and so that's why it's really critical to understand that when when we're selling to organizations, which is what we do in B two B, there's multiple stakeholders and different stakeholders are going to have different affinities to uh, different journeys. So, take the kind of oversimplistic example: developers love to use products. Like a developer is not gonna be happy answering a cold call. Like if you're trying to cold call <laughs> developers, good luck. It's it's <laughs> probably gonna be pretty rough whenever someone picks up the phone. So, you know, product led really great, right? Like get people to like build something or try it out, get into the consult, all that kind of stuff. Now, if you're um, going after, you know, ahead of let's say a BDR manager, BDR managers, respond really well to cold calls. Like they actually pick up the phone and they will respond well to a good pitch. They are not super big fans of filling in a form or um, trying out a product. And on the flip side, then you have marketers, they hate being called and they're actually pretty much okay filling in forms. So that kind of like traditional inbound is gonna be a good fit for them. The outbound is good for sales. And then PLG is excellent, uh, if not the only thing that works for, for developers. And so what's really interesting is that that's kind of like departments, but then even within the organization, like the CIO, who's kind of the IT, um, the IT buyer is more likely to fill in a form or respond to a cold call than he is to, um, you know, sign up for free for, for a product. And so Mm -hmm. understanding that what people do in the product is only, is kind of relevant to them, but there's still a lot of decision makers within the organization that you need to convince and, that needs to happen and you need to leverage that information to understand which accounts are actually uh, ready to convert. Uh, And too many companies focus on just like, like PLG, PLG, PLG. We hear about like PLG CRM companies. There's like ABM companies that focus only on ABM. But at the end of the day, the CIO might be looking at some ads. You have people using the product and you might have a manager who's gonna join a webinar to hear about how does this product help increase productivity within my team? and like all of these combined is what gives you a good idea as to where this company is with regards to buying your product. And if you only focus on one thing the PLG part, you're missing the the big picture. And and that I think is is something that is a little bit dangerous these days because there are too mm-hmm. many vendors that are really just pitching their part of the story um and and you know thankfully marketers like I think are understand it. it's a bit broader than this, but I think it's really important to always bring it back to the context that PLG is a portion of the journey for a portion of the account.
0: Gotcha. Um, and, and the, the second point it heavily overlaps with this, but I think it brings to light, a some different insight. Um, and that's that, that it just simply understand your buyer group, know who they are, know where they are. You have an interesting, uh, metaphor that you, that, that you, uh, yeah. that you use for, for Lord of the Rings. Um, if, if you can take exactly. me through that really briefly.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 I mean, it's very similar to what I was saying with the, yeah. the CIO and like different people playing different roles. Like the, the analogy I use to, to try and get people to visualize this is um, comparing the uh, buyer's journey of an account with the story, the plot of the Lord of the Rings. Um, what's interesting, the Lord of the Rings is like, you know, fairly straightforward story of um, a fellowship that wants to destroy a ring like not not that complicated bunch of people they get together there's this thing they have to destroy it somewhere else and and what's really interesting when you look at the um there's a great visual of what that storyline looks like that was done by xkcd and there's a lot of you know the the fellowship gets split up they go into different groups and what's really interesting is that each of these groups play a critical role in the overall story and, um, and if you remove one of them, then the whole story falls apart and you even have people that have conflicting interests in, within the story. Right. So Baramir is a really good example because he wants to take the ring for Gondor and he wants to bring it back and, and have it for himself. And so even though he is a part of this thing, he's like a little bit competitive. And then, you know, in the end, he kind of spoiler alert, uh, sacrifices <laughs> himself to, to save the fellowship for the three people here that, you know, haven't, haven't seen the movie or read the book. Um, but but there's something similar happening in, in organizations, right? You have these people that are part of the initial meeting. And, and then you start realizing, Ooh, these people have a conflicting interest because they have a relationship with someone else. Like their uncle knows the founder of this other thing, or they want to use the budget yeah. for this other initiative that they think is more important to them. And so understanding who those players are is, is really critical. And at the same time, Still within the analogy, you have Gandalf, who's the instigator of this whole thing. He's the one who kind of like triggers everything. And the funny thing is, he's absent for a fairly long amount of time, but then he comes like in some like very critical moments to uh, to save the day. And so that's kind of your, um, to some extent, kind of the executive champion that isn't necessarily on the forefront of everything, but is critical um, to make sure the uh, the journey moves forward. So to some extent, like. I've, you know, coached some of our customers to try and think of, you know, putting the the fellowship as a list of kind of personas and trying to figure out in deal cycles, like who are the typical people that would fit into these personas? Like who's the Gandalf of this? Like who's this kind of executive champion that's going to instigate and going to be the person who moves everything forward? Who's the person, like the the actual champion who's going to be like pulling the deal through and kind of like the day-to-day person that we're going to be speaking with who's the Samwise Angie in there anyway. And like, (laughs) it's funny because like using that story makes it a little bit easier to try and like connect things together. And it makes it a little bit less abstract than a lot of the frameworks that, uh, I've seen people work through.
0: There, there, there's a lot there. Um, but I feel it's also a pretty simple idea. Right. And, and I guess I'm kind of curious, from your perspective, I, and, and this is mostly going to be for like large enterprise deals, right? When you have these large buyer groups. And I, I think um, I think it was uh, Latane Conant, who is a Sixth Sense's CMO, um, who, who I think it was last year noticed, or at the beginning of this year, noticed that the buyer group for their product actually started at five and then increased to like eight or nine from Q1 to Q2 and if you think about that it's just like yeah duh right really like this isn't a complex product we need different perspectives and and inputs uh um and you know it's just it, it's going to touch more departments if you will um why is it hard to grasp this idea that it's like an MQL is not just if one guy comes through one person comes through an ebook uh, they're not ready to be sent to sales but I, I feel like we understand this but is it that we're just lazy is it that we just think we might get lucky
1: there's a part of it yeah i think there's a part of it i think to to some extent you know hubspot pushed for so long the idea of like inbound marketing and how you know it's just like fairly simple and then we have the the simplified idea of yeah the, the mql that um generates like an opportunity and then everything is like pretty straightforward from there Um, I do think PLG adds a little bit of complexity just because the users are now included in here. So it's less about like selling to, you know, like before when you were in the world of like RFPs, you're really just selling to the CIO groups. And then we went into more transactional sell where we were selling to the functional buyer, typically your VP or director of the organization you're selling to. Um, And now we end up, you know, having to talk with Um, the users, like the day-to-day kind of champions, the functional buyer, and typically, uh, you know, especially tools like Sixcent or like any tool that's like, has a bit of an enterprise value prop or when you're closing deals like over 50K nowadays, Mm -hmm. like you're also gonna have to talk to the CFO, right? Like the CFO part of the org is gonna be asking like, what kind of ROI can we expect? Like, how can I make sure I can justify this budget to the board that we're carving out? And then you still have CIOs who are gonna be in charge of asking, you know, with all the compliance stuff that's happened, all the regulatory changes that we've had recently, just making sure, hey, like, does this work with our DPA? Does it work with, you know, all the new regulation, right? CCPA comes into play. Now Virginia is coming out with their own law. Colorado is doing the same. I mean, Europe Mm -hmm. has been doing it for a while. So there's, yeah, we're maturing as an industry, I think on uh, B2B uh, SaaS tech. And it sure. also means that like compliance is like getting a little bit harder. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of this used to be hidden because the the CIO group would be kind of pushing everything uh, forward. And then adoption was the challenge post-sales. Now it's almost like a lot of the challenges of adoption and getting buy-in from the internal stakeholders that used to happen post-sales has now shifted to uh, pre-sales, which I think is, is something interesting because it, it probably also is the consequence of a lot of shelfware, Um, especially nowadays, right? Like 2021, everything was like skyrocketing to the moon. We were all geniuses (laughs) investing into GameStonk and into the crypto world. (laughs) And like everyone is a trading genius, right? So you could just like spend money left and right. Now uh, we're starting to wonder, okay, like out of all of this shelfware, like what do we keep? What do we not keep? And how do we become a little bit more careful about when we're buying something, making sure that we have the people within the organization to manage the tech and actually roll it out and be successful with it. And we're less likely to run large scale experiments that have like big budget line items. And so I think there, there's also a component there um, for 2023 where it's going to be a lot a lot more of what used to happen in post-sales is moving into, into pre-sales and convincing the organization this is the right thing to do.
0: Gotcha. Cool. Um, yeah, that all makes sense. Thanks for taking me through that. Um, another uh, one of the key findings has to do with data management, and I think all of these there, there's there's overlap between all of them. Um, but uh, this is this this could upset potentially some some listeners. I really like this one. Um, self input data is garbage. Um, I always thought that this was a little voice in the back of my head that was just like, okay, is this? should we really be trusting this? And I, I feel like I'm not the only one about it, but it was like, it's there, we've got it. It makes us feel sort of safe, so let's use it. Um, what What was the finding behind that one?
1: So there were a couple uh, couple instances where we saw this. Uh, and recently I was talking to um, VP of growth of a, um, like a, a B2Dev company. And the funny thing was that uh, he ran a quick analysis on. So they have one of the drop down fields that they have when you sign up for the product is you say, are you um, planning on using the product for uh, yourself uh, or sorry, it's like the size of your organization. Is it just yourself under 10 people, uh, 10 to hundred, over a hundred people, the best predictor of the account turning into an enterprise uh, account was people declaring that it was just for themselves. It's so like the exact opposite of what you'd expect. So basically, all the people mm-hmm. who came from large organizations or like the vast majority would say it was just themselves, even though they were using a corporate email. Like someone from like IBM would sign up and say, Oh, I'm just a company of myself. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're again, like if, if you're trying to sign up for the product, like you just want to get access to a product, you want to make sure it fits your need. Going through a dropdown you're just going to pick the first value. And this is something that uh, Sean Klaus at um, Atlassian actually ran a test on. So in JIRA, uh, when you would sign up, it would ask you, what was your job title? And the idea was like, if we know your job title or kind of the role, then they would tailor the onboarding accordingly. So what was interesting was that they had like a strong value prop behind it. They're saying like, if you're a, a product manager, you're not going to use JIRA the same way as if you're a developer or an SRE or an um, engineering manager. And so they wanted to tailor that onboarding. They made that clear. They're like, hey, we want to tailor your onboarding. Tell us what your role is within the organization. And what was funny is that over the uh, a few weeks, they changed the order of the dropdown. The distribution of values was always the same based on the number. Like, Value number one always had the highest number than value number two than like some other one. And the distribution stayed the same, even though they were scrambling the actual like text behind it. And so at that point they realized, okay, this is absolutely worthless because whatever we put as number one is going to be the thing people click on. And so we might be giving a product manager onboarding to an engineering manager. Um, And anyway, I have like countless Mm -hmm. examples of this, but the, the long story short there is that there's a bunch of enrichment vendors that are pretty good out there. Uh, I also think there's there's potentially a better time to ask for self-input data, right? When you're, you haven't gotten value, like you haven't given me value as a user. Don't ask for more. Like I already gave you my corporate email address. Don't go asking for the name of my kids, my dog, my age, all that stuff. Like I'll give you that later when I'm comfortable enough with your product and the value it's giving me that I feel like yeah sure I'm I'm now willing to give because I got and um and I think this is something that's just going to keep on um you know moving forward right like forms are getting shorter thank god and what we consistently mm-hmm. see is that the longer the form the worse the conversion rate and the worst part is like first off the data I mean the conversion rate is worse and the data we're getting is not useful so why are we still doing this like I think this is just a relic of like yeah like times that 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 have been gone, yeah, for a mm-hmm. long
0: time. I, I still see Salesforce's uh, form in my nightmares. Uh, I think uh, for, for me, I, I that's the first one that comes to mind because I remember my experience like 10 years ago, I, f- I filled out an ebook and there was probably 20 fields. And it's it was pretty useful back in the day, the content. So I, I provided it, but over time, as like content, just like a quality, once people realize just the uh, what kind of a hack this was, um, and it wasn't being tied to like quality content. I just, I myself started inputting crap data on this form just so I could get it done and, and receive access to it. So yeah, that, that completely makes sense. Um, related to that, uh, is the fourth, uh, key insight and that's, uh, PLG product usage SKUs SMB, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Um, can you take me through that?
1: Yeah, it's funny. Cause I, I literally talked about this again with. Uh, one of our customers today. Um, so this was um, a, a really good point that, I mean, something that we've seen and uh, Thomas Tongus actually brought it up again when he did so he had a really good analysis that he did on uh, free trials. And, and he did find that um, um, most companies that were uh, selling to enterprises didn't rely as much on activity data as SMB. And when you look back to his uh, Google days, he remembered that most of the time when they were looking when they built a model internally that was looking at um, activity, they found that the most active was SMB. And this makes a ton of sense, right? If, again, you're selling to mm-hmm. uh, startups and you're selling to, let's say, banks just to make it extreme. The likelihood that some like a startup developer goes into your product, sets it up, starts playing around with it, pretty high. The probability that the developer at a bank logs in, connects their data and starts doing something is incredibly low. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's one of the challenges, right? The bigger the organization is exactly what we were talking about before, right? There's like a bigger buying committee. There's like compliance questions, like more regulated. You can't really just connect Salesforce and do something with it. Like can't connect Amplitude. It has like, uh, PII data. So you can't just like go around and test things. Um, and so, so typically the, the risk is that if you have some kind of prioritization function, that's going to look at, okay, let's find who are the most active users and hand them over to sales. That is a great motion for either self-serve or potentially like transactional deals. But when you're looking to close uh, at the enterprise level, it, it tends to be a, uh, yeah, a little bit more complicated. And at least you want to separate the two by saying at least let's identify who are the enterprise potential and who are the transactional potential uh, companies. And then within those, uh, we want to stack rank by activity. But if you just do a stack ranking by activity overall, you're always going to find that the smaller organizations are the ones that are uh, the most active. And that's something that I've seen time and time again, where um, companies that are getting started with like PQLs, um, they, mm-hmm. uh, they trip on this every single time. Cause they're like, okay, let's get our PQLs. And the PQLs are like based on activity. And then the reps start telling them, well, I'm just like, I'm talking to great titles. Like, it's like, you know, man, like CTO or a VP of marketing, but it's like the VP of marketing of a seven person company. Like that's not going to help me make enough commission or this is not going to retire my quota. So, uh, mm-hmm. so it's not helping. And, and that's, yeah. Again, something that, that we see over and over again.
0: Really interesting. Um, I, yeah, that was just a bit of an eye-opener, but, uh, completely logical also. But I think that's also a great segue into, um, what I'd like to discuss next, which is a specific, uh, mad coup case study around lucid. And, uh, this is pretty much exactly what you were just talking about. You recently spoke at B2BMX. I'm actually in Phoenix. I unfortunately didn't have a, I couldn't make it, uh, unfortunately. But um, I'd like to learn a little bit more about this case study. It sounds like there was a 60% increase in revenue from product generated leads. And this is a platform that has, I think a million new user signups uh, every month or 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 quarter or something like that. Um,
1: For months, yeah.
0: Can you you take me through that that case study and and what you found, what they were doing wrong or what the problem they had and, and how they solved it?
1: Yeah. I think for for them, um, so super, super successful product, like million-ish new signups per month, um, and uh getting a lot of um traction across the board, right? So they have like super small teams using it, large enterprises uh using Lucid, and they have like multi-products and and all that stuff. What was mm-hmm. really interesting about Lucid is that they have a really smart team. Uh very capable. And the, I guess like the biggest challenge they had is that they were, their engineering team was in charge of building the different prioritization uh, that was happening then in, in Marketo and in Salesforce. And this was like the typical case of you have a really solid engineering team and you're starting to think, okay, we need to figure out how to better prioritize out of all the users that we have, which are the ones that should be sent to sales. And so this always seems like a super easy thing. You're like, well, we have a database where we have all the activity and all the users, we're gonna stack rank and then like start sending that kind of information into, um, into Marketo and into Salesforce then. Um, it surprisingly is more is harder than sure. it really seem, like building that integration, like Marketo isn't made to support that kind of volume of, of data. And, and what's really interesting also is that there are very few engineers that have ever sold anything in their lives. And so they don't understand what, like some of the basic things that, you know like a, a rep would catch automatically, they don't think about it, right? So very simple example. When you look at like the most active accounts um, within Lucid, you will find out a bunch of universities, Thousands of like students who are using their.edu .edu uh, that are active. And mm-hmm. this is not something that is going to be shocking to a, a developer. Like yeah, I mean, I'm just like stack ranking based on domain and then handing that over to sales. If you're a sales rep, like trying to sell enterprise deals, and we tell you, oh, most active account is Stanford.edu, you're like, okay, I'm done. Like this project is done for me. I'm just going to go and do something else. So you lose complete trust. And And then what you want is ideally, you know, you want to take whatever feedback sales has like, oh, let's actually remove nonprofits, schools, personal emails. Let's remove all that stuff and focus on, you know, sorting by activity accounts that have more than a thousand employees. And then, you know, that's now a ticket for engineering and engineers. They feel like they've built their thing. They had a sprint planning where they had to ship something. Now they're working on something else. They have to work on the product. And so, Every iteration would take a pretty long time. And it also mean, meant that you have to space it out because then you have to make sure it's like prioritized in a sprint and done. And so the real challenge that Lucid was running into is that they didn't have that velocity of iteration, of being able to say, sales is feedback, they give it to Mops, Mops is able to make the change, deploy it. And then within like a few weeks, just being able to run through seven or ten cycles of these iterations. And when when we came in, like that's what we delivered, right? This whole idea that um their uh their mops manager Peter Kirk was able to take all that feedback and on a you know weekly basis he would have three meetings with the sales team uh in the early days just like get feedback make changes and so very quickly they got to a point where the sales team was super excited and aligned with what was being served to them. Uh, And this was data backed. So it's kind of the the best of both worlds Um, because like the data backed information meant that they were actually going off to things that were relevant and uh, marketing was able to provide them with the right kind of signals and the right kind of support for them to be bought into that motion. And and that kind Mm -hmm. of sells in marketing alignment, I think is really what's at the core of um, that increase in revenue. And, And it comes from the fact that there's the ability to iterate because as a salesperson, you give feedback to marketing. If you don't see a change, like you're very unlikely to give feedback again, right? You feel like you're just like, I don't know, like screaming into, into a pillow and nothing's happening. Uh, and so then you just go, you know, go about your life differently. Um, so so that I think is something that is very undervalued in how organizations think about their go-to-market stack. The, the pace of iteration and the velocity that you gain in your ability to iterate, I think is something that should be critical to the evaluation of any MarTech tool that's being uh, brought into the stack. Like they're great tools like Touch, DBT, they're awesome on the, on the data side, but they're not tools that you can put into the hands of a marketer. Otherwise mm-hmm. they have to learn SQL, they have to learn how to commit stuff into GitHub. And and sure, it works well, and data teams are super excited about being able to pipe data from the warehouse into uh, Marketo, but they still have to write SQL. And that means you still have to go to a data team, you still have to go through sprint planning, and it slows down your pace of iteration, which means that you're less accurate. Like the the faster you can change your aim, the more likely you are to hit a bullseye.
0: Gotcha. Um, And uh, apologies, this is a a silly question, but uh, just again to reiterate, uh, this is... This was Madkudu's no-code uh, kind of solution that allowed marketers to do this. There's still an element of alignment there that has to happen between marketing and sales, whether it's like SLA-based or like criteria KPIs. That's still something that is gonna change between companies and that, you know, or, or does, does Madkudu take uh, like behaviors into account and outside of those criteria and it can still recommend uh, perhaps like outliers. Does my, Does that question make sense?
1: Yeah. No, I think the you're exactly right. The what's interesting is I would say SLAs are not really an alignment tool, they're an enforcement tool. Mm, sure. They're basically marketing, telling sales, yo, like you better do this. Mm-hmm. And and so it creates this kind of tension. That's not alignment, right? When you you force rules. Um, the the alignment that Mad Cuda allowed was the ability to iterate quickly, right? So, and and then like we we provide um, our, um, especially our, our, you know, marketing customers with kind of frameworks on like how to get feedback from sales, how to make sure that feedback is actionable and how to potentially challenge that feedback. Cause it's on the flip side, right? Like sales reps don't know everything either. Right. They, tend to have a lot of recency bias. So like if they close the deal with like a FinTech company, then FinTech is the industry to go after forever. Mm. And so Mm -hmm. you want to also like be able to challenge them a little bit and like, Hey, yeah, great. Like FinTech does work, but like we're also closing a ton of like manufacturing and we're closing a ton in like uh, Martech. So like, those are still core industries. And here's like some examples of deals that you closed recently that are valuable. So having that, that support to make a data back means that, the SLA is then something that can be agreed upon because there's alignment of like what we're going after. And it's not like, Hey, we're just going to force an SLA and no questions asked. Like you get the opportunity to discuss, uh, why you should, yeah. Why as a rep, you should actually meet the SLA because you're Mm -hmm. bought into what you're getting.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, awesome. Thanks for taking me through that. Now there, there was, uh, an ABM, ABX, uh, Element to uh, to this case study. Uh, I would like to dive into that uh, a little bit, specifically how the website kind of plays into um, an ABM experience. If you want to take this ABX uh, approach rather than ABM, um, uh, can you clarify exactly what uh, Lucid was able to accomplish with their ABM motion?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of things. One of them was. Um, kind of like growing beyond the idea of PQLs, right? So the the thing that we talked about uh, early on and saying, great, like we might have users that are very engaged, but again, if you have two people from Disney that are engaging like crazy with your product, it doesn't mean Disney is ready to become an enterprise uh, account. And so there's like a a broader question of how do you run, um, you know, ABM plays uh, within these accounts and because you're very typical kind of stuff right now, you're saying, okay, we have a few people that are engaged with an account. We need to start targeting um, with ads, um, the people that are, you know, again, like when we go back to the affinities, like now the functional buyer is likely to have affinity to a webinar that talks about why Lucid is going to help their team be more efficient. So mm-hmm. we want to run ads for those people and we want to run some um, really like top of funnel um, content for the IT buyer, so that when the conversation comes about why they should do consolidation and use Lucid for um, all of their, um, you know, design um, collaboration, then the IT person like knows about the brand and like it's a it's a fairly straightforward conversation. And then you want sales to be going after the the functional buyers and trying to put meetings and like tell them about why this product is gonna be super helpful for their team. So that's maybe more on the, I guess like later stage uh, ABM because you're at the point where there are people from those accounts that are engaging with your product and you're using that as a trigger to say, okay, this account is like fairly in market and now we want to run our standard plays to propagate ourselves uh, within the accounts. That was kind of the the core one. And what was really interesting is um, uh, using uh, metadata, which is a tool that's like very, Mm -hmm. uh, very much focused on the ad serving part of ABM. Um, They were able to create a bunch of different audiences, say, okay, like what are the kind of enterprise accounts where we have a few active users, but we're looking for a functional buyer. So run ads for those trying to get the functional buyer. What are those where we have activity from functional buyers but we don't have the it decision maker so let's go run some ads for those so kind of really like tailoring like are we missing gandalf or are we missing uh um boromir um mm-hmm. or even like do we ha- convincing boromir so those kind of um of of ads were something that generated like really really positive uh, roi compared to the more standard which is going to you know push ads for everyone within our within our target account list and then uh, on the website um there are a couple things that um that were really relevant and one of the big ones and this is actually something that um that that came from the inspiration came from envision was um changing the CTAs and changing the um the content library um based on kind of this, this idea of like, were you a enterprise expected account or more of a self-serve, right? So that the, um, the main call to action would be a, uh, talk to sales versus get started. Um, depending like you would always have like main call to action and minor call to action uh, and changing based on who you were. And this is something that we, we also ran yeah. with segment back in the day and we ran a, Pretty long A B test on this. And what was really interesting was that the talk to sales call to action performed uh, much better within the kind of enterprise space. Um, the, but on the um, more SMB and mid market, the uh, talk to sales didn't perform as well as uh, start a starter free trial. So there was like really a strong affinity. And we ran A B tests on both of those groups. Um, And you always had the two calls to actions, but one of them was the bigger Hmm. one. So it was really interesting to see that, yeah, in this kind of what we identified as like potential enterprise buyers, like talk to sales was the call to action that worked better, even though this was a company that was known for, uh, for being PLG. Um, So that's like one of the things on, on the website that I think was interesting. So kind of changing the CTAs and changing the um, content libraries accordingly.
0: Thanks for taking me through that. I can totally see how that makes sense. So that just kind of falls in line with everything that we've been talking about. Um, Just like personalization, understand your buyer journey. Personalization is key. I want to lead into this ABX, AB experience um, uh, idea and how the website kind of plays into it. We've covered like a large portion of the buyer, the the customer journey, right? Acquisition, activation, um, retention, uh, even evangelism a little bit. I'm curious for given everything that we just talked about, given your uh, title and what you do, what you're responsible for, um, where do you see websites kind of falling short? Uh, you know, B2B tech, B2B SaaS, it's mostly acquisition, right? As you were saying, talk to sales, get a demo, free trial, what have you. But I feel like there's a lot of room for improvement for everything past that, whether it's activation all the way through to evangelism. I think you can even have evangelism without interacting with the product. Curious what your thoughts are there. What you wish you saw more on on B two B tech websites.
1: Yeah, I think a, a good a good analogy for this is uh, chatbots. Where when when you go onto let's if you're a customer of uh, of a tool and you go to their website, the chatbot is still trying to sell you, still trying to book a meeting with an AE, right? And I think that that's like a terrible experience, right? You're already a customer. Mm-hmm. Like you would rather have it be a support bot that's asking you, hey, how can I help you with this instance? And like having knowledge of potentially like what was the last page in the product that you were looking at before uh, pinging you on this. And I think that kind of problem of lack of personalization kind of post in the post-sales world is probably one of the biggest things that, or the biggest gaps I see on the website, right? The, the website as a customer is no different than the website as uh, a prospect and that, it's kind of crazy because as a customer, I already know at a high level what you do. I would rather be educated towards like what are other things I should be thinking about? Like how are other customers similar to me getting value and being a little bit more specific than um than the high level um components. And I think that is something that the this part of like customer marketing and post sales um improvement is something that is going to evolve, I think thanks to PLG because we're getting with PLG, you get people much sooner into your product, much sooner customers to that extent. I think we're, there's a lot more of that land and expand motion. And so because you have a strong expand motion, now the website has to carry its weight within that expand motion. And, and a way to do that is to make sure that it adapts to the customer journey and it starts speaking to the challenges and the opportunities of an existing uh, landed customer. And, and I think it's, it's pretty cool that marketers are starting to have, see their role kind of impact, uh, more of the post sales or at least the post land mm-hmm. experience, even though today it's a lot of growth marketing, uh, or, or growth marketers, it's kind of sit between product and marketing. But I do think that's a really exciting part of, um, the future of B2B, uh, websites where it's like really tailoring to the, uh, the stage of the, the journey post sales.
0: Beautifully said. I I completely agree, Um, and we're we're really leaning into the the jobs to be done uh, approach here, and 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 kind of thinking about not only the job that our ICP is starting to trying to get done, but all of the little auxiliary jobs, if you will, that kind of can lead to the product and start that conversation earlier. Um, But that's a conversation for another day. Um, I've got a couple of uh, kind of rapid fire questions here for you before we close out. The first is, who are your sources of inspiration? Who would you like our listeners to know about that that you learn from uh i
1: would say elena verna is definitely one of the uh, top influencers because she has a really really good content uh out there um uh, guillaume caban g mm-hmm. uh still like a really strong inspiration uh, really good growth hacks that he then like yeah he's really really smart in how he does a lot of his experiments um i would say those are probably the um the top two that i would recommend at least on the like plg um growth side any
0: upcoming events that you're going to be speaking uh at or just uh attending
1: i think saster europa is the i think saster in mm-hmm. london is the the next one um and yeah i'm considering a few but uh we'll see we'll see if travel allows
0: sure <laughs> sure uh, awesome. Uh, man, Francis, this, is, this has been great. I, I've learned so much. Uh, thank you for, for talking this through with me. This is going to be very valuable to our listeners just know it. And, and I'm going to take this back to our agency and, and and just start mulling over how we can kind of put, put this uh, information to use. But uh, regardless, uh, this has been great. And thank you for coming on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for, thanks for having me. I'm excited to see uh, uh, what comes out of this.